Chris Cottrell with Paul Hastings. Excellent, and I appreciate you joining the program here. And I tell you, I got a recent blog post, guest post, written article. I guess I'm not even really sure how to phrase them these days because so many blog posts are written better than articles are in newspapers. So I hate to detract from one to do to the other, but uh, that's what we're going to kind of talk about a little bit. You, you called it fracking, fracking's secret problem, I guess debunked fracking secret problem. So um, first of all, let's, let's start off by uh, introducing yourself a little bit and then we'll go into the um, debunked fracking secret problem and kind of go from there a little bit. So uh, where, where are you located? So I'm uh, located in uh, Houston, Texas. Okay. I'm a uh, energy mergers and acquisitions attorney, which basically means I, that I help uh, energy-related companies buy and sell assets. And uh, and I and I uh, work for a firm called Paul Hastings. Okay, so it, it's safe to say that you got your finger on the pulse of a lot of uh, mergers, acquisitions, energy talk, that sort of thing, and you're able to filter through which is uh, hearsay, scuttlebutt, and which ones are probably more likely to happen than not. Would that be fair to say? Well, we yeah, you know, we try to do our best to stay stay close to our clients and, and hear what's going on, and and you know, keep our ear to the ground. Okay. Well, let's talk about your column here, debunked fracking secret problem. Just, uh, I guess, what, 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 what led you to, I guess, have that title? You know, I mean, there's, there's kind of a lot in there. You got debunked and secret, so it, it's very eye-catching, is what I'm getting at. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, as you know, oil prices uh, have come down from, you know, high of seventy-five at, at the uh, beginning of October. You know. In, you know, all the way down to 45 at the end of the year. Um, seems like prices have stabilized a bit at 50, um, but at any time you see a big price drop in the industry, there, there seems to be a lot of articles uh, written, you know, kind of trashing the industry and, and, you know, trying to pull facts and figures to kind of misrepresent the, the truth. You know, I was, I was, Going uh, through my news feed one morning, and I and I came across this Wall Street Journal article. Um, you know, and it was titled "Fracking Secret Problem: Oil Wells Aren't Producing as Much as Forecasted." So they, that was published last week, January second. And uh, you know, after after going through it, I I felt that it was you know mischaracterized a lot a lot about our industry, and I felt that. Someone needed to, uh, you know, make it clear, you know. And you're talking about the uh, Wall Street Journal's article, the one that fracking secret problem, correct? Yes, yep. absolutely. Okay, and and in their deal, they were just like you said, they were talking about the oil wells aren't producing as much, which is not uh, a new finding. I mean, the uh, the wells have been have been, uh, you know, having a pretty steep drop-off since, you know, six, seven, eight years ago since they really started doing a lot of the uh, fracking and hydraulic fracturing, that sort of thing. Um, what? Let's talk a little bit uh, before we, I guess, get too far a little bit of a sidebar. Uh, what did you make of the Wall Street Journal article, I guess? Well, you know, I, I think you're right. I think, I think uh, you know, on, on average pretty well known that that 
you know, some wells and some uh, shale plays aren't producing what was expected. You know, the, the um, I guess the surprising thing for me was that it seemed like the Wall Street Journal article wasn't researched very well. Um, and the other thing about the article was that it skewed a lot of the, you know, background, the history in the industry, as well as a lot of the projections that they showed. Well, what I've noticed, and, and this is going to be a total little sidebar here, um, the reason I kind of mentioned earlier about the blogs and how they seem to be, a lot of bloggers these days seem to be doing better journalism than a lot of the, you know, d journalists, I guess, is it almost seems like, you know, the Wall Street Journal is telling you how to feel. And a lot of the, you know, bloggers and people like yourself are telling us facts. And so we can actually come to our own conclusions and make up our own mind. Um, that, that's what I got out of that Wall Street Journal is almost there was more emotion in there than there was fact. Do, do you know what I'm saying by that? Am I way off base? Well, I definitely agree with, with uh, you know, it seemed like it was a one-sided argument, right? There, there's, there seems to be a, a shift, particularly when we read articles about the oil and gas industry. Every now and then you come across these these articles that are just one-sided they're not down the fairway and you know I don't, I don't know if you want to kind of talk about the article but you know essentially what they're arguing uh, is that over time you know it seems like the market has moved away from from the way that they valued oil and gas companies in 2007 to where where we are today, right? They're they're the market's valuing these companies at historic highs, and you know basically they're they're saying, well, you know, it's because the industry is creating this all this propaganda and false uh, you know analysis of their proved reserves, which is you know about as far from the truth as as you can get. And, you know, the other disappointing thing about the article is that, you know, at the very top, it had a, it had a figure, you know, that they, that they had made, I guess, but, you know, it only had about six companies on there, um, which really skews a lot of the analysis. Sure. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the uh, SEC, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit, because they have to be involved here with a lot of the methodology and even the valuation portion of it. Um, a lot of the rules and regulations have changed over the past decade. How does that play into all this when it comes to evaluating and coming out with uh, even prognosticating what's going to happen? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a that's a really good point. Um, you know the the SEC came out with a with a ruling uh, December thirty first two thousand eight. They they came out with a, a a new rule that essentially revised the disclosure requirements for oil and gas companies. You know related to their reserves. And what the SEC was trying to do is is modernize and update the disclosure requirements 
to reflect the industry. And you know, the, the changes in the industry, the practices in the industry, and you know, the other thing is that they, they feel it's very important to present investors with information that, that they're going to find valuable. Um, so essentially, you know, one of the changes that they adopted was that they were going to start having uh, companies value their reserves on a 12-month, you know, first of the, of the day of the month historical average you know, after 2008, before 2008, you were allowed to value reserves based on something called spot pricing. And what spot pricing is, is pricing on, on the, you know, one day, the spot pricing for the one single day, and, and they were allowed to value their reserves, um, you know, on the last day of the year for the prior year. How does investors play into this? If, um, You've seen them increase, drop, I guess, when it comes to these different rules and regulations and inflated pricing and that sort of thing. What are uh, investors saying in this whole thing? Are they investing, not investing, waiting to see? I guess just kind of from there, the investment standpoint, because I do want to ask you about the word uncertainty as well, because that word has been coming up more and more in the last few months, and that's what they used during the last downturn was uncertainty. So... Uh, let's talk about the investment side of things. Just kind of what, what what are some of your investors saying about either the article or just kind of some some of the sentiments, either from what you're arguing or what the Wall Street Journal is trying to put out there? Well, so if you apply the rules, you know, well, let me back up for a second. You know, I think I think we know that that there's you know in general in the stock market there's a little bit of turbulence right now uh, that hopefully is is correcting. As, as we begin this year, you know, there's, there's global trade issues. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, a lot of things that go into, you know, what affects the financial markets. But I think overall we can agree that there's some turbulence right now. Sure. Um, applying that to the oil and gas industry, you know, obviously, you know, we're, we're experiencing a downturn in pricing. So, you know, mix the global issues with, with the pricing, we got hit particularly hard, you know, at the end of last year and so far, this, you know, the beginning of 2019. If you take the SEC uh, methodology, you know, it, it can produce kind of funny results. Uh, you know, I think you kind of see that in the Wall Street Journal article. But, you know, I'll, I'll – Throw some numbers out at you, and and uh, you can understand kind of the situation. So, if you go back to January first of two thousand seven, prices were right at about sixty bucks a barrel. And you go, you fast forward to the end of the year in two thousand seven, and prices were right at ninety five bucks a barrel. And the average for the entire year was about seventy one dollars. Fast forward to 2017, prices were uh, at the beginning of the year at $52. They they raised to $60 at the end of 2017, and the average for 2017 was $51. And so I know that's confusing, 
but essentially what you have to ask yourself is, you know, if you're an investor in 2017, you see, you see prices start at 52 bucks, end at 60, do you think prices will continue to rise, you know, past 60, or are they going to fall back to the average of 2017, which was 51, right? And, and so I think a lot of people were predicting prices to continue to increase in 2018, which they did, you know, up until October. And, you know, going back to 2007, if, if they had the rules at that time, you know, they would have had to uh, value the reserves at $71 for that year, you know, but price, prices finished out strong at 95 So if you can book reserves at 95 bucks a barrel, you know, obviously you're going to get a much higher number than if you're, if you're booking reserves at 51 right? So, so effectively what you're getting is, you know, a, a year that could close very strong with pricing, like in 2017 at 60, but you're still stuck at the 51 number, and and it could artificially lower the reserve value for these companies. Sure. Uh, Chris Cottrell with Paul Hastings, uh, mergers acquisitions attorney. We're talking a little bit about um, some of the activity happening in the oil and gas industry, as well as I would say behind the scenes as well. Every time there seems to be a downturn, there does seem to be some mergers and acquisitions. Just kind of seems to be the nature of the beast, whether it's centralization or whatever the case might be. I think the last time it was a Baker Hughes and Halliburton even. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like it seems like everybody's uh, open for mergers and acquisitions during during these times. Um, I wanted to ask you about the steel tariffs. And I don't know if you guys have done any talk on this or heard anything from your uh, clients or, or colleagues, but I've heard a few rumblings up here in the uh, upper Midwest and in the sh- some of the uh, Colorado Rockies and, and um, I should say the Rocky Mountain region as well as the Bakken. Just some concerns because there's so much infrastructure projects going on with pipelines. And, of course, pipelines use steel. And of course, there's a lot of uh, midstream companies that use steel as well. And so their concerns are when the taxes or the tariffs or whatever kick in. Uh, have you heard anything uh, in discussion when it comes to any sort of new tariffs, taxes, fees, regulatory costs in the 2019? You know, that, that's left to be seen. I think, I think you know, you do hear a lot of grumblings. I think I think people, you know, want those tariffs to be lifted. They want they want the the market efficiency. They want you know the lowest pricing they can get for for those goods. And so, you know, not only does it affect the midstream pipeline infrastructure uh, projects, but it, it it does to a, a certain extent affect. Um, you know, upstream drilling because steel's also involved in that process. So I think, I think we all want to see, you know, the cheapest pricing possible. Yeah. I don't think anybody really knows quite what to expect yet. I mean, they know it's coming, but they don't know what to do until it, I guess, hits and a lot of costs are being absorbed, I guess. But um, it's interesting how that's going to play out. That's, 
that's one of those things I've been watching because that seems to be a little bit different during this downturn than say the last one. I mean, up in the Bakken where I'm located, the uh, last downturn they still were drilling about a million barrels a day, so they were able to uh, go down to almost like a pulse of of uh, rig count, but they were still able to produce quite a bit um, still uh, with with low prices. So. I, to me, that just seemed like the industry changed a little bit to where they almost had a little bit more um, predictability as opposed to the boom-bust cycle than it was back in the 80s and that sort of thing. Um, have you guys noticed that at all with any of your clients that the, the, you know, the new age of oil or uh, the modern shale play? Have anybody commented on how that's different over the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, I mean, you know, the shale plays... You know, it's it's truly a, a phenomenal success story, and you know, one thing I, I want your listeners to to uh, realize or think about is the fact that show play show plays are not unique to the United States. Okay, it's a global resource, but despite despite that fact, you only see you know the the real development happening in the United States. And that's that's probably because it's it's you know truly an American story about you know us having the best, the brightest, the t- the most talented people, you know, and and being able to be entrepreneurial, you know, get out there, develop this resource, and and you know, come up with innovations, find ways to get product out of the ground for for less money. And, and that's ultimately, you know, what everybody's goal is, you know. But if you look back from, from the 80s to today, you know, it's, I don't think anybody would have predicted the, the production growth that we're seeing today. It's just phenomenal. That's an interesting point that I think a lot of people forget is that fracking doesn't just happen in the United States. It, uh, happen, it can happen all over the globe. I know that... Uh, the UK is uh, if banned it primarily for the most part, but some of the emerging countries, I, I can imagine that they're only going to be increasing their, their hydraulic fracturing and energy production over the next decade as we either teach them how or our global companies go over there and go, go uh, make, some own, make some of their own money that way, I guess. But you're right. It's, it's an American phenomenon but I do think a lot of the other countries with Europe as a wild card, they're, they're, they're going to start doing it pretty soon, aren't they? You know, it's, it, I, I'm not too familiar with, with the overseas development, but I will say, you know, it, it, it probably is a matter of time before we see, you know, other shale resources. You know, you heard some rumors about uh, the Vaca Muerte in Argentina, and, and, you know, their government was trying to, incentivize people to go down and develop that shale resource. Um, so, you know, there, that is out there. I'm, I'm sure in the near, near future, we'll see that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think Americans see the value. I think the, the market sees the value in, in the United States, you know, our, our ability to, to be entrepreneurial and, and keep expenses down, you know, just, we're we're heading shoulders above the competition when it comes to oil and gas. 
Of course, a lot of the reasons we're talking about this is because of a recent article in the Wall Street Journal talking about fracking secret. And uh, Mr. Cottrell has written a kind of a debunking piece of that, explaining how uh, we've kind of changed the way that we evaluate companies these days. And it has to do with some SEC regulations and rule changes, uh, etc. And then uh, one thing I do want to ask you about uh, before we wrap up the interview is uh, EURs. Uh, you met in our kind of our correspondence back and forth. Uh, you mentioned that you wanted to discuss that. Uh, what are they? And and talk to me a little bit about that a little bit, because they seem to be pretty important for people to know. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, bringing that up, because I, I do want to talk about that. So in the, in the Wall Street Journal article, they, they talked about, you know, this concept of EUR, and you know, if if you read the article, you, you'd think we invented it in 2014, right? They're, they were saying that uh, you know we came up with it as a way to overcome low oil oil prices. Well, I'm I'm here to tell you that EUR calculations have been around for a long time, and and what they are is you know the, the estimated or expected ultimate recovery. Uh, and it's a calculated recovery of what you can eventually get out of a well or a field or a basin. And so, you know, essentially the way that they're, the EUR is calculated is by, you know, drilling, developing, completing wells. And as wells come online, um, you know, the engineers monitor how much production is coming out of the well reservoir and they are able to estimate over the life of the well what that well will produce and you know sometimes you know the more the more data you have the better and more stable your EUR calculations are going to be but if you're early on in a play you know it's much harder to have that kind of production data to to get a really good feeling of what you're what you're ultimately going to recover, and so I think that's, you know, one thing that the that the Wall Street Journal kind of harped on. Um, you know, again, I think companies have done a good job of disclosing the fact that that those calculations are, you know, they can be very speculative, and um, you know, they're they're very clear with their investors that. Their calculations are, you know, can't be disclosed to the SEC through the SEC, and it's it's purely a way for them to demonstrate how, you know, what their technical team believes could be possible. And EUR stands for what again? So, so some people call it estimated, some people call it expected, but it's old. It's the estimated or expected ultimate recovery. Okay. Yeah, related to to oil and gas. Right. So what right. you what you ultimately think you're going to get out of the ground? Well, I'll tell you the one thing I am happy to hear about all this, and I wish I wish some of the uh, bigger uh, companies like the Wall Street Journal and the 24-hour news networks, the people that already have the eyes eyeballs and ears, I wish they would have more of a conversation of uh, figuring out ways to recalculate these types of things on our program. About five years ago, we started asking the question, should we 
you know, eliminate rig counts or rethink how we look at rig counts because the numbers just didn't seem to be matching up what the projections were and the predictions, and they just seemed to be off so much. And kind of what you're talking about is another one of those examples of how the the world of oil and gas has changed. Technology, innovation, the legal side of things. I mean, uh, we, we do a weekly program or weekly update from the Meridian Energy Group on the Davis refinery, and they've spent the last year and a half in, in court over a number of different air permits, etc. And they just say it's the new normal in energy. Anytime you're starting a new facility up, it just seems like you're for the very year you're tied up in court. So, I mean, when I, when I take a look at all these different costs and some of the new innovations to offset those costs and how rig counts um, aren't what they used to be due to the either uh, decline on the well or the crawling, walking rigs and all these different things. Anyway, it just seems to me like we need to almost reinvent or rethink how we do pricing and speculation and that sort of thing. Um, and it sounds to me like you're, you guys are already talking about this. Am, am I right on that, that we should be having more of a conversation uh, nationally about this? Or is it just, um, am I out to lunch, I guess? No, I think you're exactly right. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, going back to the SEC rules, you know, that there have been a lot of, uh, you know, folks that are critical of the rule because, you know, you, you can only book proved reserves that you can develop within five years. And we know that show plays take much longer than five years to fully develop. And it definitely limits how, you know, how much, how many reserves you can book into that proved category. And I think you're seeing that reflected in the, in the share prices of these oil and gas companies, right? So, you know, even though they can only book so much in reserves, I think investors, you know, are valuing it at a much higher number primarily because they understand that the companies are, are limited as to what they can, can book as proved, you know, proved reserves. And that, that I think should tell you that we need more modern updated, um, you know, rules that, that reflect that. Yeah. I just look at it like, you know, everything else has, you know, gotten a 2.0, 3.0, that sort of thing. Um, this seems like something that should be, as well. Um, I don't know what the answer is. And I always feel bad anytime pointing a finger at something without coming up with a solution. I'd hate to be a finger pointer. I like to be a solution bringer. But just something like this, I think we've gotten to the point to where uh, some of the experts, either in the economic side or the industry side, uh, should start having that conversation too. Uh, I know they are behind the scenes a little bit, but I think collectively they need to. It's hard though. It's hard to um, change momentum. You know, it's really hard to uh, change a thought process. You know, like I was having a conversation the other day with um, Michelle Comer. She's the North Dakota uh, Labor Secretary and um, or Labor Commissioner. And they have a, they've got a real problem in North Dakota because there's so many jobs that um, they're now coming out and saying that, you know, maybe you should consider a two-year degree instead of a four-year degree, or a four-year degree is not for everyone, that type of thing. It's a 40-year mindset we got to start thinking differently about, and I think that's the case in the energy industry, too. There's some 
some different mindsets I think we need, especially, you remember the old days, how, how uh, you know, um, what's the name of that? Harry the Dirty Dog, you know, running through the energy plants and getting all dirty and everything. Even that needs to change, you know. I mean, some of the new green, clean, innovative techniques they've got have made some of this uh, uh, energy production extremely clean. So, um, anyway, sorry, I like to sidebar sometimes here, <laughs> so you can just tell me to shut up. But, uh, but let's talk about 2019 a little bit, because really at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is uh, put together all these facts and figures, speculations and prognostications, and come up with kind of a, a guideline for 2019, or at least some, you know, some, some milestones, some hitch posts, or some talking points, that sort of thing. So what are you looking at for 2019? So, you know, I, I, I don't have any uh, predictions on pricing, but, you know, I, I think and I hope that, that prices do improve uh, over time. I, I think, you know, that, that we're well due to get, to get pricing, you know, particularly above $50. So, you know, that's a hope for 2019. Um, you know, if, if you try to measure what's going to happen in 2019 by, by the early indications from what companies are, are saying their budget's going to be for 2019, I think you're starting to see some folks, some companies come out and say, well, we're going to do the same as 2018. We're going to spend the same as 2018. Uh, you got, you got, other companies that are saying they're going to spend more. So, you know, I, I think you're going to see continued development, um, you know, continued spending, and uh, hopefully we're going to see, you know, more companies focus on costs, uh, focus on margins, focus on creating cash flow, you know, lowering the cost of, of development, uh, and then also, you know, keeping debt levels down and, and trying to find ways to operate their oil and gas wells more efficiently. And I, I think we're just going to see things get, you know, cheaper, better, faster, stronger in 2019. Now, I don't know if you can comment on this because this is actually your industry and I don't know how much of it gets you in trouble or if you can actually use it as, hey, I know a lot about what's going on in this industry. Uh, mergers and acquisitions, you, you know, you're an attorney in the mergers and acquisitions world, so I don't want to get you in any trouble. But at the same time, anytime there's downturns in pricing, uh, we do have mergers and acquisitions. Like I said last time, uh, Halliburton and Baker Hughes, um, you know, and on outside of the oil and gas world, uh, Bayer and Monsanto. So, I mean, you're talking about some of the major kings of the economy and not only not only the industry, but the economy that ended up going through an M&A. Um, 2019, do you think it'll be kind of a, a year for M&A, or do you think that that was last year? I mean, how, how are you looking at the mergers and acquisitions uh, uh, activity? I mean, the more the merrier for you. I'm sure that keeps you busy. No, absolutely. You know, I, I think if I had to make a prediction for, for 2019, you're, you're going to see continued M&A activity you know, in the lower to middle market, you know, uh, you know, smaller and mid-sized companies are going to be, you know, buying and selling each other. 
you know, I think there, you're going to be, you know, 2018 was a year where, where there was huge deals, um, you know, really big billion dollar plus multi-billion dollar deals. I don't think you're, you're going to see as much of that in 2019. You know, a lot of the bigger guys, they have a lot of inventory and, uh, you know, there's just not really a need right now to, to acquire additional parties. Uh, you know, with that being said, I think if, if they could get a really good, you know, deal and get good pricing, uh, I'm sure we, we, we may see some bigger deals, but I don't think we'll see as many. Kind of wrapping up here a little bit, we have uh, Chris Cottrell with us, and he's written a column debunking the Wall Street Journal's fracking secret problem. He's a M&A, mergers and acquisitions attorney. Uh, Paul Hastings is the name of the company. Uh, Paul Hastings LLP, to be a little more exact. And uh, just kind of, I like to give guests the final word. Anything that uh, we missed, anything you want to reiterate, if you want to you know, plug your your blog, that sort of thing. If you want to do all of the above, I just like to give guests the, the final word. And so the question is not framed by, by me, if you will. So uh, the floor is yours, sir. Sure. Uh, I appreciate that opportunity. Um, you know, if your listeners are interested, um, the the head of our practice group, his name is Jimmy Valley. Uh, it's spelled, you know, Jimmy, last name Valley, V-A-L-L-E-E. But he has a website called jimmyvalley.com. Uh, he has a great book that he wrote last year called Giant Shifts. You know, I'd like to urge all your listeners to uh, pick up a copy and, uh, you know, take it home with them. It's got some really interesting things about, the, the, you know, the things that are happening in energy and, and the shift that's going on uh, and, and kind of some predictions for the future. Wait a minute, who's Jimmy Valley? I'm looking at the website here. Jimmy Valley, an American energy M&A lawyer and uh, commentator. Uh, and he, he also he goes around the country speaking. Is that what he does? Yeah, J- Jimmy's been in, in the industry for a long time. He's, uh, you know, he's my boss. And he he's probably done, you know, if he hasn't hit the $100 billion mark uh, in D- in deals, he's pretty close. Wow. He, he's, uh, you know, yeah, he's an incredible M&A attorney, you know, basically, you know, the, the best, the best in the business, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, he's just on the cutting edge of everything, and, and I'm just excited to be on his team. Boy, this guy seems, I'm just reading up on him here, and um, energy trends reshaping America's future. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I honestly believe that when, uh, when it's all said and done 100 years from now and, you know, our, our grandkids are reading or great-grandkids or whatever are reading in their history books, this will be known as the shale age or, the, you know, the fracking age, if you will, just like the iron era and, uh, you know, the bronze age and everything. I just I really believe that's how historic this is right now. I mean, the way that we are redoing our infrastructure. I mean, out in... Um, a lot of these rural areas, they're getting roads for the first time. I mean, when you think about that, a lot of these rural areas where the fracking is going on, they only had a couple combines a year ago down those roads. 
now they got semis going down. So, I mean, you know, you're, we're really rebuilding a lot of uh, America's infrastructure. So, um, anyway, I just, like I said, I, I sidebar a lot. And, and uh, Jimmy Valley, you kind of got me excited here as I was kind of uh, looking over the um, website. So, hey, give him a plug. Uh, how, how often does he speak? What's the uh, email address and, and the website and everything so people can book him? Well, the the website's jimmyvalley.com, and, uh, you know, you can also find his, his profile on our firm's website at paulhastings.com, and his email address is also on there as well as his, his phone, but his phone number, but he's, he's talked all over the United States. Uh, he, he's done like the, you know, several speeches, you know, you know what the, the Mensa organization is, uh, for high yep. IQ. Yep. Yep. So he's done a, a few of those, uh, keynote, uh, speeches and, and he's, uh, he's really, uh, in the corner of the oil and gas industry, he's somebody that that goes out and, and tries to to get our our message out there, you know, and and encourages, you know, positivity about our industry. All right, and then one last time, people, if, if you want to get in touch with uh, you, do you do you get and stay in touch with people uh, through your your email and blogs and social media and that sort of thing, or do you like not to be contacted? <laughs> no, absolutely. I'm, you know, would love uh, your audience to feel free to reach out to me. You know, my my profile is also on our, our uh, law firm website, and you can also email me at uh, Christopher Cottrell at paulhastings.com. 